east of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river, in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people, because they are blessed. The next morning Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balaam, the son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. And this is the word of the Lord. Good evening. I'm the, uh, I'm the wrong man tonight, I'm afraid. I'm the wrong man for two reasons. Uh, firstly, because uh, the person you should have had, well, in fact, wrong that I'm a man at all, really. Uh, firstly, the person you should have had uh, is Sam. Uh, but sadly, um, she was going to be preaching, but she's not been well. Um, so uh, she asked me to step in. And then I'm the wrong person uh, for a second reason, because uh, there was two people preached this passage this morning, myself and Katie, and Katie preached an absolute blinder. Uh, she was brilliant, and I was uh, confusing and mediocre to myself, um, so I don't know what it was to the congregation. 
So you should have had Katie, but sadly uh, she's not here. So you're stuck with me. And, uh, but I'm the only person you've got, so you're going to have to bear with me for, for 20 minutes or so, and we'll see if we can make some sense of this together, shall we? So with those comforting and encouraging words, let's just have a moment of prayer. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for your word, and even though at times it may seem obscure, Lord, we thank you that there is truth in it. Father, would you reveal that truth to us tonight, each one of us? And Father, may what you reveal to us have power and strength and authority to change the way we live so that we may live more like you. Amen. So, here we are again in Numbers. Uh, slightly different passage this time. Did you tell the difference? The people aren't complaining. <laughs> Not this time. In fact, it's quite a different focus here. Um, but let's just chat a little bit about how we've got to this point. Um, we're not far on from the, the last time we smoked. Do you remember the affair with the, uh, the, golden, uh, the bronze snake sorry, upon the pole? Um, well, we're a little bit further on from that. Since that time, Israel have had a couple of battles. They uh, were trying to move towards the Promised Land. They uh, asked the Amorites if they could cross uh, their land. The Amorites said no and brought out an army against Israel. And, uh, and tried to defeat Israel by force, but they were utterly defeated. And so um, the next land on, as it were, from, from those kind of battles that the, the Israelites have just faced um, are the Moabites, and they've seen the Israelites coming towards them. And uh, Balak, who is uh, the king of the Moabites, um, is looking for a way to defeat these people. And, uh, and that's where we pick up the story. But I just wanted to reflect just for a moment as well about these other nations, about these other nations that the people of God are encountering. Because it's very easy to us just to ignore uh, that, that side of the narrative, just to see them as a kind of bit players in the story. But the truth is, if you're anything like me, they cause me quite some distress. I look at these other nations and the way that they are seemingly just brushed aside by the people of God and God himself fighting for um, the people. And it seems that God is judging them harshly. It seems that Israel is just marching on without regard for anyone else who's currently in the lands uh, and destroying them if they get in their way without regard. And it seems that this is very hard uh, to believe. It seems it's not very fair that God would allow or even condone and uh, encourage such wanton destruction. And in fact, that's why uh, some of us uh, got together um, just in passing at the beginning of the week, and we were talking about this, and we decided actually that these questions that have been raised for us through numbers are actually quite big, and we don't just want to ignore them. Uh, questions about God's judgment, questions about the difference we see in the God of the Old Testament, particularly in, uh, as we've seen in Numbers, and the God of the New Testament, a God of grace and love, uh, as we like to paint him. How, how is that difference? How can we reconcile that? And what about those people who are in the land already? What about them who have been uh, seemingly cast out or not loved by God? And what about uh, God's judgment when it comes against his own people? So harsh and so brutal at times. Well, these questions uh, we, we, we want to address, and so we're going to try and put in a, a, a date. Um, probably a Sunday afternoon um, seems to be the best date we can think of. Uh, late November, we'll, we'll get back to you when we've got a date and a time penciled in, when we can just 
have a time of talking about it. Uh, not necessarily to have someone at the front telling you all the answers, because I'm not sure we all have, any, any of us have all the answers, but a chance when we can perhaps talk it through and see what wisdom there is among us and see if we can just help those issues to sit just a little bit easier with those of us who struggle with them. So I'll, I'll let you know when that's, when that's planned, if we, if we can make that go ahead. But for now, I just want to say just, uh, just a few things which hopefully will help us to address this issue in some way. Because it does seem that God loves the people of Israel and he blesses the people of Israel, but everyone else is just in the way. But they're just there to put up a bit of resistance and maybe fill out the story a bit to make it a bit more interesting. But if we go back to the very start, the very start of God's engagement with his people, we'll actually see something that will make us question all of that. We'll go back beyond uh, Egypt, back beyond Moses, all the way back to the very start of God's engagement with his people. Back even before Abraham was called Abraham, back when his name was still Abram. And if you do have a Bible, please would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, and yeah, if you've got a Bible that looks like this, it's on page 13. Uh, but probably not too far away than that, even if you've got a different Bible. Genesis chapter 12. And there are some people who will say that Genesis chapter 12 is the major turning point in the whole Bible. It is the pivotal point in the whole Bible. There are some who would say that. I personally think that Jesus is a little bit bigger. But there are some who would see this as being the pivotal point of the Bible. And that's because right up until this point in Genesis 12, people have been moving away from God. It started in the Garden of Eden. God created people. Everything was perfect. People separated themselves from God when they brought sin into the world. And people have been moving further and further and further away from God. And at this point in chapter 12, something very significant happens. Because God, again, speaks into his creation. And it's at this point when God turns everything around and starts to bring everything back into line. This is the very beginning of God's plan to restore creation to himself. And God makes a covenant with a man called, at the time he's called Abraham, but we know him as Abraham. And so uh, I just want to read the first three verses of chapter 12. It says this. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That last line is really key to this. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And if that's true, and if we can trust God to keep his promises, then God promises that through the people of Israel, that great nation that Abraham becomes... God will choose to bless the whole world. God's desire is that the whole world is blessed. Even those people who the Israelites are encountering at this moment, God's desire is that they are blessed. The people in the land, his desire is that they are blessed. But why are they not blessed? Well, look before in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, 
I will curse. See, the reason why God fought against the nations that Israel are facing are because they came up in war against them. The Amorites who have just been destroyed, they were destroyed because they came against God, against his plans and his purposes in force. And if there's one thing that you need to learn, and you need to learn it very quickly, particularly if you're anywhere near the people of Israel at this point, is you don't mess with God's promises and his purposes. God cannot be undone, and you cannot defeat him by means of force. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. This is really key to the passage we're about to read, so don't lose sight of that. The truth is that the people of Israel at this point, they're still under that promise. They're still under that covenant with God. God never repealed that covenant, and he still hasn't repealed it to this very day. And it's important for us to realize that because we as the church are the continuation of what God is doing, the promises that God has made to Israel. We are the continuation of that through Jesus. We're the branch that's been grafted in. So those promises were true for the Israelites here, but they're true for us now as the church. And we need to hold on to that. So here we are in Numbers, and then into this story uh, comes uh, Balak and this chap called Balaam. Now, Balaam, you probably know, has a donkey. Uh, we'll get to the donkey a little bit later. He's not really key to what we want to talk about, but, uh, but we will get a mention of him. So all those who uh, are waiting for the donkey with bated breath, um, you will get a little bit of donkey action later. But Balaam comes into the story and he's quite a strange guy, isn't he? He's quite an interesting chap. Because here he is, someone who is not part of the people of Israel. He's not part of the people. He belongs to another people. And because the whole story of the Bible up to this point really is, is engaging with how God is, is engaging with his people, we can almost start to think that God is only at work in the world at this point through the people of Israel. That he's almost ignoring everyone else. No one is important at all, just the people of Israel. But here we see someone who is not of the people of Israel and actually in some way seems to have a real relationship with God. Certainly there is a level of deep interaction going on there between Balaam and God. We see in this story Balaam talking to God and God talking to Balaam. There is an interaction. In fact, when we think about it, and we think about who else we've heard about in the story who has a similar or an, in any way stronger relationship or a displayed relationship with God that we've heard so far, well, it's, it's really only Moses who's around at the moment who has that level of relationship with God that we hear about. I mean, Moses' relationship with God is far more significant, don't get me wrong. Moses had a face-to-face -face relationship with God or something that was very close to that. A very close relationship with God. But here we have uh, this character, Balaam, who listens to God and who speaks to God. A relationship that is closer, it seems, than many people who are in Israel at this time. Most of the people of Israel don't have that same interaction with God that Balaam has. 
What a strange character, someone who is not part of the people of God, and yet he has this interaction with God. More than that, he understands that God has power and authority. He understands that he cannot go against what God says. Verse 18 makes that very clear. Even if you were to give me a palace filled with silver, I could do nothing, great or small, beyond the command of the Lord my God. He knows that God has power and authority. That's important as well. But he was obviously some kind of seer or prophet who was known in the areas around. Because Balak has heard of him. Balak's the king of Moab. And yet he's heard of this Balaam who has some level of power and authority over spiritual matters. And that's why Balak, the king of Moab here, has got in touch with him. Because what Balak's basically done is he's seen the army of Israel coming, the people of Israel, that uh, two million of them, that massive number. And he's weighed up his own army of force against what is coming. And he's seen what that army has done to the other nations. And he realizes, he's made a calculation in his mind. I cannot defeat this people. If they come against me, they will wipe me out. And so I need to find another way to attack them. And so Balak attempts to attack the people of Israel through a spiritual means, a spiritual attack against the people of Israel. He wants to curse the people of Israel so that they will be defeated, or at least he can then turn them away. And he attributes to Balaam, this person who he's putting all his trust in, something which actually is he can't, Balaam doesn't, doesn't even admit himself. So if you look in verse 6, he says, put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know, and he's talking of Balaam, that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. I know you, Balaam. I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. Well, Balaam knows himself that's not true. Because in verse 18, he says, I can only do what God says. He knows he doesn't have the power to bless or curse. But here, Balak has attributed to Balaam something which can only be attributed to God. He's putting his faith in the wrong place. Balak is trusting his safety and his, uh, the blessing of him and his people in the wrong place. Now, it seems that we read through this passage. Uh, Balaam, I guess, particularly when we stop before the donkey, comes out as a good guy. He looks like a good guy, doesn't he? He only ever does what God tells him to. He seeks God's uh, um, word. He seeks what God says. And then he only ever does what God tells him to. But actually, it's quite surprising then when we read in the New Testament um, passages in Revelation, Peter and Jude, who talk about uh, Balaam, they're actually very negative about him. They're quite scathing about him. They see him as, as money-grabbing, as only interested in uh, himself and his own pocket. And indeed, when we go on to look at uh, uh, some things later on uh, in Numbers, we, we actually see that there is a suggestion that Balaam himself got involved in some pretty dodgy stuff in order to bring down the people of Israel. Never actually going against what God said directly to him, but finding ways and means in which he can undermine them. 
It seems that Balaam perhaps is not such a squeaky clean character as he first appears. But really, uh, that's by the by. It's not really important to, to the message that we have today. So then we come up against this problem of the donkey. We didn't read about it in our passage, but what the next passage goes on to talk about is uh, Balaam's donkey. Now, so what's happened so far is that Balak sent uh, his uh, envoys to Balaam to say, um, come on, come and curse these guys for me, will you? And Balaam said, let me go and talk to God. Balaam's had a little chat with God, and God said, no, don't go with them. Don't curse these people. They're, they're my people. So Balaam's gone back to Balak and, uh, Balak's envoys and said, no, I'm not going to come with you, I'm afraid. So Balak then sends back more richer uh, with more money trying to buy Balaam, and he says, okay, let me see what God says. And God says this time, well, since these people have come, go with them, but only say to them what I tell you to say. And Balaam says, fine. And so then Balaam sets off with these people on a donkey to go and see Balak. Now, I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, you can read it for yourself there, see, see what you think. But essentially, he gets on his donkey and he starts going down the road and the donkey stops. And Balaam doesn't know why the donkey stops, so he gets angry with his donkey, takes his stick and he beats his donkey. So maybe that tells us he's not such a good guy anyway. You can always tell the true nature of someone by the way they treat their animals. Beats his donkey. And the donkey then heads off into a field, trying to find another route. The donkey stops again. Balaam's angry, so he beats his donkey again. And then a third time, they're setting off in a narrow place. The donkey stops again, and he beats the donkey again. And then God opens the donkey's mouth so that Balaam... um, can hear what the, the donkey says. The donkey speaks to Balaam and he says, why are you beating me? And then God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees that actually the reason the donkey stopped is because there is an angel stood in the way. And God says to Balaam, in fact, the donkey saved your life when he stopped. You should say sorry to your donkey because he's actually saved your life. If, if he'd gone on, you'd have been killed. And God warns Balaam that the path he is taking is a reckless path. That seems strange, though, because God has told Balaam to go. So how can following what God's command said to do be a reckless path? Well, I think probably it wasn't necessarily the physical path that that Balaam was on that was reckless. But my interpretation is that actually it's Balaam's heart that was on a reckless path. See, Balaam knew who God was. He knew his power and his authority. He knew he could not stand against God, and he knew that what God said was true. That if God says something's blessed, it's blessed, and there's nothing I can do about that. It's blessed. And if God says this is cursed, well, it's cursed. There's nothing I can say that will change that. I can only tell you the truth. That's essentially what Balaam says to Balak. But maybe there was something in his heart that although he knew who God was, actually he was still interested in what he could get out of it. He was still interested in his own pocket and his own reward, which I think is what the New Testament really leads us to believe. But when uh, Balaam goes to Balak, Balak has him, uh, well, he says, I want you to curse these people. And Balaam speaks, he'll say, I only say what God tells me. And then he speaks, and what he speaks is a blessing over the people of Israel. And he does this three times. 
Three times Balak takes him to a different place, tries to get him to curse the people of Israel. But all Balaam says is a blessing upon the people of Israel. And Balak gets a bit annoyed and then uh, Balaam speaks again and he actually speaks a curse, a blessing upon Israel, but then a curse upon the people of Moab as well. That's all you can read about that in the, in the chapters that follow. It would have been great to have him in our reading today, but sadly we didn't have half an hour to read the whole story. Balak tries to curse the people of Israel, but God blesses them. They're already blessed. Nothing else can happen. But in trying to curse them, actually all he ends up doing is bringing a curse upon himself. Balak's attempts to curse the people of Israel come to nothing. But here's the twist. You see, the people of Israel were blessed. Nothing Balaam could have said could have changed that. Even if he'd pronounced a curse upon Israel, it wouldn't have been true. They were blessed. They were blessed because God had blessed them. But there was a people who had the opportunity to be blessed and actually ended up being cursed. And that was the Moabites. You see, because if we take God at his word, and if his word is true and enduring, then in Genesis chapter 12, we read that those who bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. That actually, if Balak had sought to bless the people of Israel and bless what God was doing with those people, rather than curse them, he would have actually brought a blessing upon his own people. But in trying to go against what the Lord was doing and undermine what the Lord was doing and destroy what the Lord was doing, he actually only brought destruction on himself. How different would life have been for Balak and his people if instead of trying to go against the Lord, he had actually blessed what God was doing? So what then for us? What does this mean for us? Well, as I said earlier, we are still under the same promises. The same promises of God. Those promises still endure for the church now as much as they did for the people of Israel at this time. As much as they did for Abraham when they were first uttered. God is blessing his people. We, the people of God, the kingdom of God, we, the church, are under God's blessing. And here's the encouragement, here's the good news. Nothing can come against that. Nothing can undo God's blessing upon us. Now believe me, there were times when the people of Israel did not feel like they were under God's blessing. That's why they keep complaining so much. And there are times for us when we don't feel like we're under God's blessing. Even in our nation, there are times when we face persecution there are people who set up against the church and what God's doing. There are people who seek to undermine it. There are people who will speak very loudly, saying that we're ridiculous and stupid for believing that there is a God and that he actually cares about us. For believing that there is a God who we can know and have a personal relationship with. There are people out there who will shout very loudly to say that we are stupid and foolish. And there are situations when even the government will turn against us and try and restrict our freedom to worship God. 
But if we think we've got it bad in this nation, then we just need to look a little bit further afield. Because let me tell you, in many parts of the world, in many parts of the world, to confess that you are a Christian is not only to bring yourself open to ridicule, but it's actually to bring yourself open to imprisonment and death. And I don't need to tell you of the stories that we've all read recently of Christians who have refused to renounce Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have been tortured and have watched their families killed, being killed and have been killed themselves because they refuse to renounce the name of Jesus. There are people who will try and come against God's kingdom with force. But the encouragement for us is that nothing can undo God's blessing, not even death. God's blessing goes beyond death, and in Jesus we have the proof of that. And more than that, God's actually intention has not changed. The intention that God set down there with Abraham has not changed. That intention was that the world would be blessed through him. Through the blessing that God placed on Abraham, the world would eventually be blessed, everyone in the world. God is still interested and still at work to see that blessing reach the whole world. And so God's work in us can't be undone but our work for God in this world is not yet completed. So we need to continue to live in the blessing of God and share that blessing with the world around us. There is nothing in this world, no power, no strength, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual. There is nothing that can come against God. There is nothing that can thwart his plans. And there is nothing that can undermine his purposes. Those plans and purposes are at work in us. Let's be encouraged. And let's continue the good work. Thanks, Mark. It's time to, uh, we're going to sing together again now. Um, so I'll invite the music group to come back. Um, and if you'd all like to stand together, we'll sing.